Good morning, this is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership on WSOU 89.5 FM and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Well, we are coming to you live from the Affiliate Summit East Conference. And we are so pleased to have as our in-studio guest, if you could call the Marriott Marquis Coffee Lounge, uh, our in-studio, uh, Mr. Oliver Root. He is the CEO of Viglink. Did I say that correct? You did. Excellent. Oliver, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you for interrupting this. I mean, you're very busy at this show. Literally running up 38th Street, from 38th Street to, uh, to, to get our interview in here today. So, for the benefit of our audience, can you share with them a little bit about your education and background? Absolutely. And then we'll get into the big Sure, no problem. Um, I went to MIT undergrad. Uh, I was a computer science uh, major, and I stayed there and did a master's degree. I finished in 99. My first jobs out of college were software engineering jobs. Uh, I went to work for Paul Allen for uh, about a year and a half at Vulcan. Uh, I ultimately joined Microsoft, uh, where I stayed for four years. I did a number of things there, but uh, most notably I started the team that does TV and movie downloads for the Xbox. Uh, and then I, I left there and went to Harvard Business School. Uh, in school, I, I spent a summer working in venture capital at Founders Fund. Uh, actually got to do the SpaceX investment or participate in that investment, which I felt great about. Uh, and then, uh, you know, was looking for a business to start and, and came up with Viglink uh, in business school. It was actually originally a business plan competition entry uh, and, and a class project. And so this led you to found Viglink, but what was it about the, what, tell us about Viglink first of all. What, what does Viglink do? Absolutely. So Viglink is a group of technologies that helps publishers monetize their content. Uh, your audience is probably familiar with display advertising, which are the uh, you know rectangles around content that, that look like ads. Uh, the insight behind Viglink is that the content itself, actually, the text generates a lot of intent, like people who are interested in purchasing things. So Viglink makes sure all the products and services and brands you mention in your text are linked out to where uh, the, the products can be bought or, or, or transactions can happen. And then if your audience clicks through and buys something, uh, you, you collect a cut. And Viglink sort of enables all that, and we do a lot of clever things to drive as much revenue as possible to the publisher. So it's a, a revenue stream in a, addition to display advertising that most publishers can make use of. So can you give us an example of an ad that a, a consumer would see um, and, and how Viglink plays that role? Absolutely. So Purse Blog is a good example of a, of a site we work with, uh, and, and we have many of them, CNET, all the Rodale properties, all the Meredith properties. Uh, Rodale, those are the exercise guys, right? Yeah, they have men's health, uh, women's health, men's fitness. Um, so we, we notice the products they mention or find phrases that, um, you know, uh, nutritional supplement would be a, a sort of cheesy example, but we, we look for, you know, really all sorts of things. And we, we underline those phrases and link them out to where those items can be bought. Uh, and then we do a lot of uh, sort of data analytics and math to figure out where is, where, what is the link and where can we link it that is most likely to lead to the most revenue for the publisher. And because we represent uh, about 300,000 publishers worldwide. You represent 300,000 publishers. We do. Yeah, we do. It's, it's a big network. It's about 15 billion page views a month in aggregate. And we, we have a lot of volume, so we can negotiate with the advertisers. We can get better rates. We can create competition amongst them for the traffic. And we do all that as a way to drive up uh, the revenue that the publisher commands. And, of course, we take a cut of that as our revenue. So when you were in business school, how did this idea come about? You know, I was, I was intent on starting a business, and I actually had a spreadsheet with a number of ideas. 
um, I had lunch with a with a former um, classmate of mine, and we had some discussion, and, and we sort of came up with this idea, which at the time I originally coined as uh, Bitly meets Commission Junction. Uh, that may not mean anything to your audience, but it's two two companies that we sort of thought would taste great together. Uh-huh. Um, and it was the only one I had on my spreadsheet that I that I kind of couldn't put a hole in, and I. Uh, wrote a prototype myself uh, in school and, and then pitched. Uh, actually, it turned out to be almost 100 investors before someone gave me some money. Uh, <laughs> that man was Josh Koppelman from First Round Capital. I know Josh. Um, yeah, he is a uh, great guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we went from there. Wow. You know, um, you know David S. Roof here in New York? I'm not sure that I do. Called, um, he has a book just recently out about how to work with VCs and angels. And I had a, an opportunity to interview him for the show. And he says, typically, you know, it takes about 400 meetings. So you got it done in 100. So. That's interesting. I, I That's not the advice I give entrepreneurs, actually. <laughs> like, I, I think it's usually, you know, 20 or never. Uh, I think I was too ignorant to know that. And occasionally it does close on the 100th. But I, but I think if you've had 20 meetings and everybody has said no... It's possible something needs to be refined about your pitch, or yeah. very good, very good. And so, Viglink has been around for how many years now? Uh, started in 2009, so just over six years. Six years, and some of your uh, VCs are some of the best, well-known in the, in the industry. Absolutely, uh, Google Ventures, First Round Capital, Emergence Capital Partners, RRE right here in New York, um, Foundry Group, and uh, we we took some personal money from. Um, Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, Deep Nishar, another senior LinkedIn guy, the Partovi brothers, who are great angel investors. We really got a, a great uh, group of people behind us. And so, from your projections, you're on track in regards to where you want to be as far as growth lines? Sure. I mean, we're, we're growing the company's 50 people. Um, you know, we don't sort of release exact figures, but, sure, but you know, I think uh, Continued investment, continued growth in headcounts, continued growth in network size, all good external signals, uh, you know, that something's going right. And we feel great about where we are. Wonderful, wonderful. And so, in your opinion, why is Viglink a better alternative to your competitors? So, it, it has not, uh, there's not a huge number of competitors out there. Um, the, the more traditional competitors are uh, companies like Vibrant Media, or Contera, who, who sort of exited the business, and Infolinks, they, they have what used to be called in-text advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, and that your readers might be familiar with when you go to a website and you see a double underline under a keyword, and yes. that's super annoying and everybody hates right. it. Right. Uh, yeah, so, so that, that was probably the, the, the progenitors of the field. Um, they, they are in-text, but they in, in, the way I think about it is they consider the advertiser the customer. So they say, now that I have the Ford campaign, where can I put it? Where, where Ford is willing to pay for it. We, when we started Viglink, we very consciously flipped the script around and said, let's think of the publisher as the customer, even though the advertiser is the one who pays. And how do you think differently when you take that mindset? The answer is um, you, you say, now that I have this page, what is the right thing to put in it? Uh, and so you have a very different mentality. And so our product is much less intrusive. There's no display element of any kind. There's no pop-up. It's just an ordinary hyperlink that your readers are totally familiar with. Uh, and, and so audiences are much more, you know, comfortable or even enabled by it. Um, like, we don't make anything unless someone clicks through and buys something. So putting useless links wow. in a page is just is not helpful. Wow. And so basically, every one of your links is spot on, would you say? 
Well, I mean, we, we, we certainly we use software to, to make them as good as possible. We notice links that are either unclicked or that never convert, and we stop inserting those links. So I certainly wouldn't say we're error-free, but we use software and human beings to really do as well as we possibly can at, at making the, the links value-add, uh, you know, for the... For the reader, as measured by, if they clicked through and bought something, then then they took advantage of it, and uh, you know we can measure that. We know that. And so, in, um, during, as we were walking up to the table, you, we had talked briefly talked about semantic technology. That's right. What type of semantic analytics are you utilizing to make this happen? So that you can talk about. No, absolutely. Uh, we we do pretty sophisticated natural language processing to do what we call commercial commercial reference extraction, okay. which is basically reading text, English text at this point, uh, and and identifying phrases that are talking about products, commercial references. It can be brands as well and services sometimes. Um, but what you want to do is you want to underline a link in the way that a human being would. So, so when again with these double underline guys, you'll read a page and you know the single word security will be underlined. And and no human being ever thinks like God. I was wondering what security meant, and now this the presence of this link allows me to find out. Right? Um, we we try to to link in a way that human beings would. And in fact, we created an early reference set of human annotated text that we use to compare mm-hmm. our software against human performance. So we we know we're getting better because we can measure against what human beings did when you paid them to underline the right things in text. So to give an example, uh, are you able to determine if one is talking about Dolly the Sheep versus Dolly Parton the Actress? Certainly. Uh, I mean, a more common example is like Amazon the River and Amazon the Store. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, that that absolutely. Michael um, Jordan the basketball player versus the Jordan River. <laughs> Right, so, so there's a lot of clues there. One is the the general topic of the of the site. You know, we can both see what's declared, like what they say they're about, and then we can also uh, look at the the words in their text and try to understand. You know, automotive sites tend to have words like carburetor and exhaust and muffler uh, and piston, uh, and fashion sites have very different words. Right, so there's nothing worse than underlining a word in a fashion site and linking it to an automotive offer. Um, What's interesting is the bar for publishers, the, the, the ratio of money to screw-ups is, is different than you think. Like, you have to be giving them really quite a lot of money before they can say, hey, man, you screwed up this time, but it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you around. You know, you really have to be careful not to link the wrong thing. Yeah. And, and um, you know, you, you have to get it right the overwhelming percentage of the time or, or the publisher moves on. So, uh, you know, we've obviously built up that network, you know, with some real endurance over time. And you know, trial and error and hard knocks. But uh, you know, at this point, it's a real, um, it's a real asset. I mean, you know, we have a big network that publishers have used us for years. We got real. Main, we're definitely moving more mainstream in terms of what kinds of publishers use us. Uh, you know, the sort of the New York traditional media crowd, like you know Meredith and Rodale, mm-hmm. a few years ago would not have have worked with us, and today they do. Wow, excellent. And. There's been some talk about semantic advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some folks that have tried. Um, I haven't seen any clear winners yet in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you foresee that as a, a something that you will expand to do, or or a competitor, or is this that your your way is just your business model is just better? That's a, I, I might call that a false dichotomy, right? I'm, I'm not sure that is actually the choice we face. I, I think one one of the neat things about Viglink is. We don't have to compete with the display advertising guys, right? So, so, you know, there's probably 50 billion in investment that has happened in the display advertising industry. 
and I don't have to convince a publisher like, hey, ditch what you're doing in display and work with me instead. That's a tough sale. They're, you know, they're multi-billion-dollar corporations, and and they're dealing with differences in yield of, you know, hundreds of a percent or, or you know, thousands of a percent. We say, look, keep doing whatever you're doing in display. We work in the text, so so it's an easier sale because we say, yeah, yeah, do that and do what we do too. Um, I'm, I'm going to take a guess at what you mean by semantic advertising. It's it, it, maybe another word for contextual advertising, where yes. we say Excellent. the ad we put yes. next to the text needs to match what the text is about. Right. Um, so we actually have a really good understanding of what text is about. Uh, definitely state-of-the-art from a natural language processing state of view. So we can certainly give signals as this content is actually about not just automotive broadly, but specific SKUs. Uh, and so we have a number of, of partners and technologies we're working on on that front. I don't have anything to announce, but uh, that data is very valuable. Excellent, excellent, excellent. And uh, let's talk about your team. Um, how would they view your, your leadership style? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I As think. He smiles. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm definitely a technically uh, minded person. I was an engineering background, and so I think definitely I come at the problem from a from a technical standpoint. Uh, you know, background in engineering and product, and and probably a little weaker on the marketing side. Um, you know, I think they would say, um, you know, that that um, I don't manage well people who need sort of very specific management. Uh, you know, I think if, if I'm in someone's to-do list and saying do this and then not that, uh, you know, that doesn't work well for me at all. I, I one of my sort of managing, um, uh, you know, sayings that I picked up is is missions, not tasks, right? So I, I don't want to give people a task. I want to give them a mission and let them figure out That's the task uh, or the, you know, the group of tasks. Uh, definitely over the years have tried to become, you know, much more quantitatively metriced, like so... Everything we're working on has some numerical measure associated with it, and you can measure progress against it. Uh, I, I'd say also definitely, um, you know, have 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 stepped into different uh, disciplines uh, to understand. But one of the key skills of the CEO is is to let your people do their thing, right? I think if you step in and, and help out the the salesperson or the product person, there's some degree of like, hey, man, if you want to do this. Why don't, why don't you do it? My job gets a lot easier, right? I think enabling your team to feel um, like you trust them and it's theirs and they get to make the call and you can, you know, advise and inform, uh, you know, I, I that's the, the style I try to maintain. Um, certainly San Francisco at this point is, uh, you know, a, a employee's market in the sense that, that for top people there are many more jobs than, than employees and so... You know, you really have to work hard to have an environment that's positive and engaging and, uh, you know, uh, that you're attacking the opportunity with all gusto because there's there's plenty of other things that all our people could be doing. How would you describe the culture at Vivian? Um, it's, it's very, um, I think a lot of people say this, but we have a sort of, pardon my French, no, no a-holes policy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think... People down on earth pretty much? Yeah. Um, you know, we do... Um, it, it, there are no walls uh, or, or cubicle walls. Yeah, it's totally open. Um, you know, a lot of very smart people. Um, although maybe this is a contrast with the rest of Silicon Valley. One is we don't have the you know foosball, Red Bull, pizza fueled uh, environment, right? I think that's quite common in, in Silicon Valley where you hire very young people and try to work them around the clock. 
and and we try to say, look, like we don't have a foosball table here because at night we go home. You know, some of us have families. Um, uh, so I'd say that's a bit of a contrast with the rest of the valley. Uh, you know, we also, yeah, that uh, we also. Obviously, look, we're a software company. Engineering is the core of what we do, but it's not the only thing we do, right? I, th- I feel like a lot of uh, Silicon Valley companies basically say engineering is the only thing that matters and everyone else is a cost center, and, and that's just not true, right? Uh, sales is critical. Marketing is critical. Um, you know, real... One of the interesting things about Viglink is the business was very financially based from day one. Like, it is a monetization technology, so there's no version of it that's like, hey, we're succeeding but not making any money, right? It, it doesn't work that way. So because we were so revenue-focused, sales mattered from day one. Product, you know, all, all the disciplines matter. So how do you, it sounds like you're setting yourself apart from the other companies in Silicon Valley with your culture. What type of onboarding process do you utilize to, you know, reinforce that culture? Right. Um, well, I'd say we try to, I don't want to say we, like, you're right, I, I, I named some ways in which we are different than others, because I think when you say, how do you characterize your culture, you, you say, like, what is different about your culture than everyone else's culture? I think, um, as far as our onboarding, um, so, so we, we, we sat down and talked very carefully about our values a few years ago. So the Viglink values are dare, overcome, challenge, collaborate, and play. I love that. Uh, yeah. yeah, and every person in the company can, can name those to you. And we think very hard about when we hire someone, hey, is this someone who, who will dare? Is this someone I can play with? Um, and, and I think that affects everything we do. You know, overcome is you always have 20 units of work and 10 units of resource, and, and how do you get it done? Um, so, so uh, you know, as far as onboarding, we, you know, we have a, a, a dedication to speed. Uh, one of the things is all your paperwork is filled out before you arrive, and in fact, we mail you your laptop ahead of time and say, you know, come in on day one, ready to work. I don't, you know, we don't want to see people spending the first day setting up their laptop because there's work to be done. Um, you know, we we have a um, we have a small HR team that sort of helps with here's where you sit, here's where, where you go. We have a culture buddy system where everyone gets paired with someone who's been at the company a while to sort of introduce them to people and make sure they're not like sitting alone at lunch. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real um, warm culture. It's, it feels very holistic, if you will, uh, making sure that everyone is involved. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really a, um, we want it to be a fun place to work. We mm-hmm. want people to understand what the work they're doing is for and why it's exciting. Um, we want it to be fun while you're there. The environment, the physical environment is very pleasant. Uh, but but not over the top, right? Like we, I think there's a lot of culture of waste in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, where people have rooms that are decked out in, you know, sort of themes. Uh, we were never financed that way, and, and we don't sort of think that way. We try to be, you know, nice but frugal. We, we don't blow money on, on crazy stuff. Wow. Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you. Um, so... Your, your, your leadership style follows your, your culture, and you say it sounds like it's a very respectful culture. Uh, I'm, I sure, think I'm so. sure you guys can blow off some steam. Some <laughs> um, no, I think but, that's but, true. But, I think but that's but true. This, this is so uh, refreshing to hear that folks can go, it's time to go home and spend time with your family. Right. Yeah, I just think you, so it's got to be sustainable. Um, 
you know, and and um, it's funny that I that I that I keep sort of talking about things as in contrast to others, but but I think that is probably a good way to talk about it. You know, a lot of Silicon Valley seem to be competing for the same person, right? They they want the person who just graduated from Stanford CS degree and is ready to work all night and is uh, you know um, got nothing else going on in their life other other than the startup. And I think. Uh, not only does that lead to an undiverse workforce, but it's just, it's very, if you're competing for the exact same people as everyone else is competing for, prices are crazy, supply is crazy. So I think saying, um, you know, the, the pool isn't necessarily restricted to people who graduated from Stanford in the last five years, you know, uh, people in their, you know, in their 40s and 50s who, um, you know, have families and have been around a while, like, you know, um, those people are great too. The gray hair folks. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think um, when you're competing for talent and it really is a competition, it helps to be you know mining from a from a larger pool than than everyone else, and and we do consciously think about that. Excellent, excellent. So, um, what advice would you give to a young entrepreneur who wants to start their business? Some lessons learned, that, the things that you learned right uh, coming out of Harvard. It's funny. It's like the last phrase there. The coming out of Harvard part, I think, definitely sort of cuts it narrower. I, I would, I would say, it's not necessary to go to business school to be an entrepreneur. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's suitable for some businesses and not for other, or less so for others. I would say, I think, certainly when I was younger, I imagined that as you get older, you get more skills and more experience and more connections, and so you only sort of become better as a potential CEO. Uh, I'd say, well, all that is true. There's also a downward trend, right? Your spend goes up. Your commitments to things outside of work goes up. Um, your ability to, to see things with fresh eyes goes down. And, and so those lines cross at some point. And, and so I'd say, if you're interested in being an entrepreneur, don't fall for the, like, well, let me go do this other thing for five years first, and then I'll go be an entrepreneur. Just go do it. Just go do it. I think that I would definitely recommend getting a co-founder, and I do not have one, and I think that is a big mistake. Uh, I, you know, let me be clear: the the wrong co-founders, total kryptonite, destroys a company. Uh, have you read the book, The Founder's Dilemma? Uh, I was actually a student of Noam Wasserman. Get out! Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yep. I, I recommend that book to everyone I talk to who wants to uh, be in business with someone. Yeah. No matter the entrepreneur or, or corporate America, whatever. He's fabulous. He's been a mentor to me personally. Um, you know, he's really great. I think, um, you know, I, I explored a, with a co-founder early on. It didn't work out. And I was, to be honest, a little sort of pissed about it. And I said, you know, I can do this on my own. Uh, I'd say that's a mistake. I think you don't, you, you underestimate the sort of isolation of working alone. You underestimate, um, you know, I mean, First Round Capital actually just put out a data set where they, they've had 10 years of, of pitches and they've looked at which ones they funded and which ones have done well. And they actually put a numerical percentage on how much better pairs do than solo founders. And it's substantial. I mean, I can't remember the exact number, but it, it matters a lot. Right. Wow, that's great. That's great. And so um, <clears throat> what public figures personify the type of leadership that you, uh, you might steal from, you might say, not right. emulate totally, but say, right. you know what, I like that particular aspect. Right. I'm a big fan of Elon Musk. Um, I, you know, I, I hear, frankly, he's pretty hard to work for. So, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I am. I'm not as smart as him, first of all. And I don't, you know, emulate him in 
at least you know what legend would have it that he that he can be tough to work for. But I do think the importance of a big vision. You know, he could have pitched SpaceX as like, yeah, we're going to build cheaper rockets than the other guy and we'll gain market share in the national reconnaissance market. But instead he said, our job is to go to Mars, right? Or to make humans a multi-planetary species. Like, that inspires, right? And so anyone who cares about aerospace goes to work at SpaceX if they can. Because, like, who doesn't want to work on that, right? Uh, You know, I I think... um, you know the, the the importance of a big mission of talking boldly yes. of of really going for it. Uh, you know I'm impressed by. I I think I mean his risk tolerance dramatically exceeds uh, I'd say most entrepreneurs. I mean he really you know put it all on the line in a way that I think if he keeps behaving that way he will ultimately go bankrupt one day because you you just can't do all in bets for your whole life and not lose them at some point. Right. Um, but you know he's he's certainly doing well so far. Uh, and, and man, it's fun to watch. So, so I'm definitely a big fan of him. Um, and he attracts amazing people. I mean, I mm-hmm. spent some time with, with Gwen Shotwell, who's the president there. Uh, and she's just a phenomenally inspiring woman. Um, and, and I think a good pair, uh, yeah. uh, to him where, where he sort of makes big promises and I think she actually makes them happen. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm like, an outsider, right? I don't want to say I speak for course, those guys at all. Course, I haven't talked to them in years and years. Not, not, not at all. Yeah, but but from I read the biography and I'm or you know Elon's biography and I was impressed. So here we are. We're at the affiliate summit east. Um, did you achieve your objectives here? Was it what you ex- expected in regards to helping you to continue to build the brand and the business of? Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean we. Uh, I, I was a speaker. I was I was invited to be a speaker here, uh, and I think an opportunity to uh, address uh, you know the crowd is is always worthwhile. I think when people in the industry think about Big Link, you know, having said, oh, yeah, I heard Oliver talk, and he seems like a credible figure. I think that helps us a lot. I'm also on the board of the Performance Marketing Association, and we had our uh, our um, board meeting uh, while I was here. And, you know, we use the opportunity to meet with customers, publishers, uh, potential employees in New York while we're here. So I live in San Francisco. I get out here probably once a quarter. So this is a good excuse to come out. I, I You know, so I come to Affiliate Summit every year just – Often I get to speak and and I meet people I know. Um, I I would say to your audience, you know, be sparing with the networking and trade show spend and and, and time and energy. Uh, I'd say, you know, if you can sell a customer, that's probably time better spent than networking. Excellent, excellent. As you know, Seton Hall has a Stillman School of Business, and so the students at Seton Hall will, will, will hear this. What books, if there was two books that you can recommend for them to read, sure. um, not just in being a leader or being a CEO, but just being in business, yep. or just being a good person. Okay. Uh, so I recently read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Uh, great book. Great book. He... Um, He's an interesting guy, uh, you know, uh, very into hip-hop, you know, which is probably unusual for someone in his demo, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and authentically, I think, right. you know, no, it doesn't seem like bullshit. Uh, and he um, he really, you know, he, he got um, Opsware through some really tough times uh, and, and um, you know, I think speaks realistically about what's challenging. I think it's very tempting... Uh, for business leaders to tell the story of like how I knew it the whole time and I'm such a genius and and I think that's not true there's a lot of luck involved and um, man it it 
you know, every success I know has always been, um, e- even the ones that succeed, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on inside, and there are periods. So he coins the term the, the WIFIO, the WFIO moment, which is we're effed, it's over. Uh, <laughs> that, that entrepreneurs, you know, feel, hopefully not all the time, right. but certainly right. uh, do feel. Um, so, so I think that's a great book. Um, what's another great one? I mean, I recently read Zero to One, uh, which is uh, based on Peter Thiel's uh, lecture notes from Stanford. Uh, I actually think the lecture notes are better than the book. Um, but but I think, I mean, it's just required reading. Like, I, I think the way he structures, every startup must have a secret, right? Which is not like nobody else knows, right. but uh, a thing you believe that others don't believe, which is what gives you your advantage. And that others won't believe until it's too late for them to copy you. So Vigling's secret is that individual ordinary hyperlinks in text have much more economic value than is commonly believed. Uh, and I think that led us down the path we're on. So I think, um, you know, when your audience is thinking, I'm going to start a business, what is your secret, right? And, and it's important to frame it right. It's, it's, not, it's not a literal secret. It's just, it's something you know to be true, which few others agree with you on. Uh, and if you can come up with something solid there, there's a chance you have a defensible business uh, you know, that can be economically valuable. This is great. This has been great. Believe it or not, we're out of time. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here with Mr. Al Karuth, the CEO of Viglink. I want to thank you for coming on the program. Great. Thank you very much for having me. This is Darrell Gunter, your host for Leadership and streaming on the net at WSOU.net. Have a great weekend. And remember, leadership begins with you.